Well, welcome back to Crazy Face Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And uh, here we have what we want to call a special treat in our uh, Crazy Faith Talk world. After long uh, slogging through series of complicated thoughts, looking at Epiphany Tide for several weeks uh, and getting to know Jesus all over again. And before we enter the more somber and disciplined season of Lent, we are taking a moment for a standalone conversation, um, sort of like a breath of fresh air, a cleansing of the palate for ourselves Uh, And today we want to introduce to one another and to all of you listening, our various um, unspiritual spiritual practices. In other words, things that each of us do that we have discovered, maybe even in hindsight without intending to, there are some things we go to that help uh, feed our souls again that don't look religious and don't show up on anybody's list of spiritual practices. We've done that before. We've given whole series mm-hmm. before about ancient spiritual practices, modern spiritual practices, from fasting and prayer to um, labyrinths and all sorts of things in between. But what about those things you end up doing that feed your soul that nobody told you to do or that monks haven't been doing in a cloister for a thousand years, but you just find feed your soul? So that's where we're going to start. And Erica, we'd love to hear from you first. What are some things you do that feed your soul that are nevertheless unspiritual, spiritual practices? So Steve, I find it funny that you mentioned monks, because when I was in seminary, I used to go out to a convent before every semester. And I would be out there for about 24, 36 hours or so. And usually what I found myself doing uh, is my spiritual, not spiritual practice of sleep. Ah. for most of that time like I would get out there and I would get unpacked I kind of get settled in and then I'd lay down and take a nap and about three hours later I would wake up Mm -hmm. um, because that's what my body needed Uh, it just needed sleep it needed rest and I had not given myself that and that's still true today I don't have a place that I go like I did in seminary Um, but I always tell people don't talk to me or try to call me between like two and four on Sunday afternoons because I'm tired mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am napping. Um, you know, I, I've had recently a, a pretty hard week in the church and realized when I, how exhausted I was because of how emotional the week was. And I slept really well that night. And yeah. so the next morning I woke up kind of refreshed. Um, so Sleeping for me is definitely a spiritual, not but not spiritual practice, at least not in the traditional sense. But I must point out that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are some pretty major characters who took naps. Yep. And not just who slept at night, but deliberately we get stories of naps, no. right? Yeah. So we got Elijah um, in the Old Testament who thinks he's the only prophet left for God. He's angry. He's, you know... Um, He's angry with God. He's angry with everybody else. He's off in this cave. He's complaining to God. And God's like, here, have some snacks, take a nap, sleep on it. You'll feel better. And, and in fact, the, the snacks are miraculously brought, right? There's like at least two occasions, one where while he's napping, ravens come and bring him food Mm -hmm. and then fly off and he gets to eat them. And then he goes back to sleep again uh, at God's command. And what the next time around, like there's an angel making cakes for him on, on open, uh, like a hot stone or something like that. And again, he eats the cakes and takes another nap. So naps are biblical. Yeah. Uh, 
And even more so when you think about Jesus, who, you know, slept on a boat in the middle of yeah. a storm. Yeah, yeah. Even to the point where when the storm is so bad, it wakes all the other disciples are, you know, like, aren't you, don't you care that we're perishing? And they have to wake Jesus. Like, this is a sound sleep that Jesus mm-hmm. is still napping through this storm and everybody else is freaking out. Yeah. So. I am really grateful that for wherever else our conversation goes today, we started here because in some ways what you've pointed to is like the epitome of how I think this idea of an unspiritual spiritual practices, because this is not something that like you go to, you know, you lay down with a thought, God will grant me a vision or I'll wake up with my next Mm -hmm. week's sermon. It's not functional in that way. And it's not like you are, Lord, I dedicate this nap to you. It's more like I need this. But I think there is something deeply, deeply profoundly spiritual, especially in our our tradition um, coming out of the the Christian and and I think out of the Hebrew scriptures as well that speaks about the rhythm of Sabbath in our lives and Sabbath not as reward for hard work but as something we are each given as a gift because we need it and I think that's a move that is wonderfully countercultural and necessary because our, our our culture is okay with you work very hard for long enough. Therefore you are allowed a little bit of a break so that then you can go back and be productive. Mm-hmm. And that may be true, but I think Sabbath isn't quite like that. Sabbath isn't a reward for working hard. Sabbath is a rhythm of what it is to be alive. Um, whether it's, we're talking a whole day when we shut downtown and no stores are open or it's the short Sabbath of a couple of hours to get to rest on a Sunday afternoon. I kind of wonder what this conversation would be like if we were had more uh, if we were in conversation with people with different cultures than our own. Yeah. Uh, regarding like naps and whether or not it is or is not a spiritual spiritual practice, you know, yeah. like because yeah. uh, there's plenty of cultures, especially around the equator, where they intentionally take a nap every day right. at the hottest part of the day mm-hmm. because it's like, ah, it's too hot to do anything. It will, you know, take a nap now and then you will be able to be up later, later. Yeah. Um, and like, cause like, okay. So my kids are right at that age where they are aging out of daily naps. Mm-hmm. They still kind of need it. Like they get super grumpy when they don't get naps, but they're old enough to realize I don't like naps. I don't want to lay still. Like I'd rather be up and playing with people and, you know, naps are boring and, uh, you know, I'm always exhausted. So I'm always like, no, 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 no. Cause if you take a nap, I can take a nap. Like, and <laughs> right. I, I need a nap. Like you guys, I'm going to have so much more patience with you. If I get like even just a 30 minute nap. So mm-hmm. just lay there quietly for 30 minutes so I can nap. And, yep. uh, but you know, sleeping is such an important part of our daily life. Mm-hmm. Like, whether it's napping or like the big sleep that you happen at night, or, you know, if you work at night, then the big sleep you have during the day, whatever your sleep schedule is, but sleep is so critical, like without sleep and with, uh, you know, we're exhausted. And when we're exhausted, we can't attend to things like our spiritual life. Yeah. But it's just not healthy to not get good sleep and decent amount of sleep. I mean, you can do it for a day or so, but you extend that out for long periods of time. It's just not good for your physical health, Yeah, let alone your mental and spiritual. I think it's really helpful how both of you uh, have, have connected to, to the, the communal 
aspect of what happens when we are when we have the chance to rest and you know whether it's hey kids you need to take a nap so i can take a nap or that awareness of i function better when i'm awake in my work life when i have had rest it 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 reminds me of how the sabbath commands in the hebrew scriptures are always in that plural and that it's not just Mm -hmm. you who i'm talking to receiving the commandments but your employees your household even your animals you all get to rest with that awareness of if you need it everybody else needs it and i even think it's cool that at least in one of the givings of the sabbath commandment god grounds it in the creation story and it goes because after all when god created god rested not because god's tired but because god knows the rest of us need it and that notion of Mm -hmm. that god's willing to say sure you can tell everybody I took a nap. I rested so you all can rest as well. And if I can rest, then you can. And this isn't about um, worthiness that's earned. It's just how we're made. But that that idea of because we are connected to each other, because we, we belong to each other in community, my rest allows for you to have permission to rest. And also I can function better when I've rested, when I do relate to you. So I think that's absolutely a fantastic example of an unspiritual spiritual practice. Are there others in your regular uh, weekly or monthly routine that you find are helpful for you, Erica? Not so much regular, um, especially not, you know, in the winter months, um, but in the fall, spring, and summer, um, I like to go for long walks, sometimes with my dog, usually without because she likes to sniff everything. Mm -hmm. And so when I go for these long walks, like to go clear my head to you know, sometimes I pray, sometimes I don't, sometimes I just need to clear my head. I'm usually wanting to go at a certain pace that like my heart rate, you know, my heart rate goes up and everything. It's a little kind of like exercise, but not as intense. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just like, okay, let me get out in nature. Let me just get away from all the things that are stressing me out right now and just breathe in some fresh air. Yeah. Is that something that you stumbled into or like you felt like at some point you told yourself, I'm going to go for a walk that maybe that'll be good for me or more like it was just something you did and you discovered later. Oh, I actually feel better after I do that. I think I kind of stumbled into it. Um, my first appointment, I, I lived in town, um, like on the city blocks where we had sidewalks and everything. And I had a large enough church that I was serving. I had like a gym downstairs. And sometimes I just needed to to step away from the computer step away from the phone step away from everything and i'm just like okay i'm just gonna go walk laps in the gym downstairs or go walk around the block yeah um or i live between the two churches i was serving at the time they were both a half mile away from me so i'm like okay i'm gonna walk down to one church and walk back Mm. it was just my kind of i need to step away from what i'm doing yeah to just clear my head yeah yeah and sometimes that was longer sometimes that was shorter depending on the day and my my mood um but yeah, it's something I still, I've not been good about doing in recent years, but I need to get back into it. Sure. Well, and like you say, it, it's one of those things that works more easily in a time of the year when you don't have to get all suited up to go outside. You know, like you can take a casual, oh, I've got five minutes, I can go take a quick walk when the weather's mm-hmm. nice, you're not thrown on boots and a heavy coat and a hat and then regretting every step when you're outside and it's freezing cold. <laughs> Winter's hard to do that kind of, but rest of the year, yeah. Yeah. And it's not even just putting on all this stuff. It's like, I'm a klutz. So I will (laughs) fall on the ice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How about for you, Sarah, what are unspiritual spiritual practices in your life? So this is a recent one for me. So 
pardon me as I think through half-formed thoughts, um, but my my oldest son is almost five and he has just recently realized that he can, when he like draws or colors, he can actually draw things or people and have other people recognize them. Like he doesn't have to just scribble. Mm -hmm. So in our house right now, we've been doing a lot of coloring after supper um, where all four of us will sit down at the, you know, newly cleared dinner table with a couple pieces of paper and some crayons and we'll all color. So, you know, my youngest son is still very much in the scribbling and then he'll tell us maybe what they are, <laughs> but you know, they're all scribbles. So like, it's hard to tell. Um, my, my spouse will be drawing Batman and then, you know, I'll be drawing whatever. And like, I've always really liked drawing. Um, and I've always like, uh, I think previously I talked about praying in color mm -hmm. uh, on this podcast. So like, this is a very much a communal aspect of our family life right now that we are all sitting down and doing this. Like, nice. um, it's not just one person sitting down and coloring. It's at least three, if not all four of us doing it. Uh, but in particular, it has helped me realize the importance of having somebody to follow in life hmm. that, you know, very rarely in life are you given the opportunity to do something completely original and that's okay like nearly yeah. always we're following somebody else's footsteps we yeah. we don't have to reinvent the wheel the wheel has already been invented and we can just copy the design and maybe make some improvements here and there as we see fit yeah um but i especially realized this in the family drawing sessions because my almost five-year-old who is sitting next to me, maybe not that night, but maybe the next night, he'll remember what I drew the night before and he'll draw that almost yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like it's, it's quite amazing to see like, oh, if I drew a bird on Monday and then on Tuesday, he draws a bird. Like that bird looks like a pretty darn exact replica. Um, and it's just kind of made me even more aware that, yeah, most of the things I'm drawing, I'm drawing because I, I saw them somewhere else and I wanted to like draw it myself um, because I can't think of what to draw like, like just out of my own head. Um, but it's also making me more aware that my kids are watching what I'm doing. Mm. And so that I've now become something for them to copy and to be like, and, you know, the drawing is just one example of that, you know, the, you know, we, we try really hard not to swear in front of our kids. So we will say things like, oh, square yeah. or, um, or oofta, which is a nice, like Norwegian square. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the other day, one of my kids said oofta and I was like, I know you heard that from me. Yep. Oh no. Oh no. How do I explain this to your teacher? If you say this at school. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it, it's making me aware of, again, with spiritual practices, even non-spiritual spiritual practices. I'm not the first person to do any of them. Yeah. Like people have been napping for centuries. People have been drawing for centuries. Um, and similarly 
other people will be copying the things that I do, just like I'm copying other people. Yeah. I am reminded of a, a line I first heard uh, from uh, one of Rob Bell's videos or writings or something where he talks about that that's an important piece of what it means to be a disciple, that a disciple isn't just someone who knows what the teacher knows, um, but who learns to do what the teacher does to be like the teacher. And I think that's an important piece that is often missing, honestly, of, you know, uh, Western Christianity and especially uh, the, the branches of Protestantism that so often get focused on, here's the correct list of things that we believe, and we get kind of antsy about talking about we live a certain way of life because we can be worried that it sounds like we're saying you earn God's love by you know, doing these things right, but that the model in the New Testament is Jesus calling disciples who follow what he does, and in a way, like, all the Gospels are is the disciples learning to draw from Jesus, and he'll, like, sometimes be really, you know, playing, here, everybody, I'm drawing God's love, and okay, I'm, and, like, the disciples, you know, have, have to learn that their pictures are too narrow, and Jesus has to keep, you know, making it bigger, but they learn it by seeing him do it over and over and over again, and then with the thought that when you get that, when you get comfortable in it, yeah, then you can draw things that are new or change it or variations on it, but you've been you've been following the the person who's your teacher or or the rabbi or whatever. I think that's such a beautiful picture of the whole Christian life. It also makes me wonder if if I if I copy somebody or do something often enough, if I'll eventually fall in love with whatever that thing is that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Right, like. Um, when I was in seminary, I had several classmates who had the non-spiritual spiritual practice of exercise. Mm-hmm. Like they somehow while exercising felt more connected with God, their okay. creator who mm-hmm. created their bodies that they were moving. Like, and I never really loved exercise. Like I've been trying to be better about doing it because I feel like that I, I really should. Um, but like, I hate it. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's like even walking outside, like Erica, like you like to go for walks. I hate walking. Like I hate going for walks. Like it's always either too hot or it's too cold. And then I, you know, just start thinking about how far away I am from my destination and like, you just getting mad. And so like, that's clearly not a spiritual exercise for me, like, or, uh, you know, practice, like, cause I just, I hate it. And the whole time I'm just thinking about how much I hate it, but I wonder if I keep up something like exercising, would I eventually find that peace and that non-spiritual spiritual practice that my classmates have found. Yeah. It makes me think of like the, the way earlier theologians and even some mystics talked about the value of habit that like, it's not about, do the thing you like because you like it, but sometimes do the thing that you know is good, even when you don't like it. And by repetition, eventually it becomes something that's a part of you. Um, And certainly that's like where Aristotle is among the ancient Greeks. And that's where, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas goes as well. And probably any of the monastics as well. Like they didn't invent things like the hours and the offices of prayer or the, the, the ways that the, the monks would, you know, work or wash the dishes or cook or whatever, because it was always fun, but more like we're creating a way of life. And by sheer repetition, this will shape the kind of people we become. 
maybe that maybe that's they're on to something. And that's kind of what it's been like for me, because I'll tell you what, Sarah, there's some days because where I live now, whether I make a left or right out of the road that leads to my house, there are hills. So and like enough hills that like if I go right, I go downhill. So to come back home, it's all uphill. If I go left, I go down and uphill. So like sometimes I, I admit like I start for that walk and it feels good and then I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> now I gotta go back up the hill. Yeah. Yeah. Um but as somebody who has been doing it long enough and even like just this year in 2020, I've started um trying to be better about my personal fitness and getting on a treadmill and getting like 30 minutes of movement every day. It's it's getting easier, but I also keep distractions with me. Like I turn on the TV or something, yeah. watch YouTube on my phone and be like, okay, if I'm doing something else, then it doesn't seem so bad. I think too, I don't know if this is something either of you have ever wrestled with, but there are times where I have felt like uh, almost the same uh, hang up that we can sometimes have with, with your other practice you mentioned about taking naps, Erica, about like, sometimes there's those voices like, but this isn't productive time, time mm-hmm. spent, you know, like, and the, like, there's this nagging voice, but there's other stuff that's waiting to be done. Yep. And there, those things have deadlines. And to the extent that we can get over those and go, yes, there are things that need to be done. It is also possible to take this short break in between. And that lets me function better. But like, getting over there dealing with that is not just a mm-hmm. once you know once and you're done and you've always overcome it but like that voice can keep coming back whether it's you need to rest or you need to walk or you need to do whatever sometimes being able to tell the voice that demands productivity and say i'm i'm sorry i i don't i don't require productivity right now these other things are a part of being human as well as uh, those times of being not productive means yeah. that later we can be more productive yeah. But, yeah. You know, I think that goes right back into our American mindset of always needing to be producing, always needing to be working. And if you're not, then that's frowned upon. Yeah. 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 Things like naps and exercise give you that energy to then when you do go back to be productive, you're able to do things more clearly and more efficiently because you've taken the time to rest or to just get your body moving, you know, you're doing something that's different. So then when you come back, you're like, okay, now I've got a clear mind. Let me tackle this. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of your non-spiritual spiritual practices, Steve? Um, There are two that come to mind. One that's been um, a relatively recent addition to my life and one that I've been doing almost as long as I've been in uh, congregational ministry. Um, I'll start with that one because I've got the longest track record with it. Um, And it, it, happened by sort of happy accident or, or I don't know that happy is the right word, but, but it wasn't like my intention, but I've discovered this, this habit I have um, when someone dies, when someone in uh, either the congregations that I'm going to be officiating for a funeral or even just somebody that I know, and I'm feeling that loss. um, I, in the days usually before the a funeral service, I'll go find a piano somewhere, whether it's in our house or if I'm at one of the two churches, and I will play uh, Chopin's Prelude in E minor. It's a short piece. It's it's not technically too difficult, so I'm never terribly worried about butchering it. Like it's it's just two short pages, and it's slow and sad. Um, but I have found like when I 
am going to be called upon to preside or officiate at a funeral. And especially when I'm feeling grief and I miss that person or I'm feeling that loss. But when you're officiating, like that's not the place for me to be breaking down in the middle of my own funeral sermon or something like it. I, I need to be the one holding it together. And there's so often that talk about pastors called to be the non-anxious presence that at least you're not making it worse. You know, when other people are grieving or they're at the funeral home or whatever, our job, we can't fix it, but we can at least be a presence that absorbs some of the garbage by not adding to the anxiety and, and having to melt down ourselves. But part of how I have come to deal with that or, or process that is I'll go play show. And, and for me, it's it's not enough just to listen. I have to be the one playing and somehow something happens that at the end of that, I'm like, okay, and now I'm ready to function and I can write what I need to write just to speak about them or to speak good news in the midst of, of their, their death or to preside at the funeral service or to keep vigil with them at the visitation hours. That, that's just been something that I, I only realized after I've been doing it for a while and I go, boy, I do this regularly and go, oh, I, I guess I do this now. And now almost it's something that now when, when there is a death, like, okay, where am I going to find time to go play Chopin? Cause I need that. And it doesn't take long. It's all of, you know, three minutes long, but um, it somehow something happens and, and it helps me now. The other thing that is a little cheerier um, is uh, our household has recently discovered the joy that is the great British baking show. And uh, we are catching this show on uh, streaming now on, on uh, Netflix, even though uh, for a while it had been on PBS and we could watch it on the PBS uh, app on our TV or, or watch on PBS. Uh, and for folks who don't know the premise of the show, this is what I love about it is it is so unlike every American reality TV show I've ever seen where it's cutthroat and whatever they're you know competing for, you know, is going to have big money and glory and prizes and they can be ruthless toward each other and so much is fake drama that's played up with heavy music the premise of the great british breaking baking so is so fantastically simple that you just get a dozen people and each week there's a theme okay we're all making cakes this week we're all making bread or what whatever and the judges will tell them here's what you're making uh, some of the, the contests involve things they've prepared for. Some it's on the spot. You all get the same recipe. We're going to see how you all make it. And what I love about watching this show is, number one, that all the various contestants, the bakers, are like there to help each other. It's so weird that instead of like sabotaging each other or I'm going to form an alliance and steal your yeast, like an American TV show would do something stupid like that. And instead mm-hmm. they're like, if somebody's cake isn't turning out or they've got too many things they have to get out of the oven, someone will come and help them. Oh, yours didn't work right here. And I'm like, I'm finished. Can I help you? And the judges are there watching, but also there's other uh, like, like hosts of the show who are cheering them on as well. There's something communal. It's just, in a sense, it's just a show about watching people do things well and celebrating when they've done something well. And when the judges will talk about each person's thing that they made, like it's beautiful how it just gets to the simplicity of you made a really good rye bread. Good for you. That's great. I, I like the taste. I like, and there's something to me that is, is, um, is just enthralled at the idea of appreciating the simple beauty of just like well-made bread, or you made a good cake, good job there. Um, and that it requires no other selling. It requires no big cash price. At the end, the winner just gets a cake stand, a series, plain old glass cake stand and a bouquet of flowers. And I love that. Like after 12 episodes and a whole you know three months of their lives or every weekend and they're doing this on their own time on weekends they come back you know they work through the regular week and then saturday and sunday they go out to the the 
uh, estate where they do this baking in a big tent outside. And then they got to go back and live their regular lives in between. It is so unlike the the cult of celebrity that I am sick of in, in so much other, of other uh, American reality TV shows that I just love the idea of a show where people are trying to make things well and celebrate when they do and commiserate with each other when something doesn't go right. And that in the end, it was all just for a cake stand and to make a thing well. It it it, it reminds me there's a there's a, a passage in one of uh, Robert Farrar Capon's books. I think it's his book, An Offering of Uncles, where he talks about the idea of being human is like just to offer up back to God the goodness of creation and all the things that we do. And so, you know, part of being human is to celebrate the beauty of other creatures and to notice it and to take it in, as well as our own human capacities for art, for culinary skills, for baking, for all the things that we do to say, look, God, I, I, I see and I appreciate the beauty of a world you've made, and here's how I have contributed to it as well and it it, without any without there being any spirituality or religiosity at all in this program i find it like deeply good for my soul on all those levels so it's been forever since i've seen the greatest greatest british bake-off but i've read a lot about it since i've seen it and i think one of the examples of the kindness that we can show one another has come from from reading about this show okay that the two hosts that go around and like talk to the people and kind of you know tell them also like well this is your challenge for the day yeah so if somebody needs a moment like if something hasn't gone well and they need a moment to collect themselves Mm -hmm. the hosts instead of being all like oh camera people go and make sure you catch this drama the host will actually will go and stand next to that person and start just swearing up a storm with name <laughs> brands. Like they'll have swear words and they'll say like, oh, McDonald's, Starbucks, like just start also like listing off all name brands. Yeah. Cause they can't air that. Yeah. Like they can't air the cuss words. They can't air the name brands. And so they'll just kind of do that until the person has collected themselves and can kind of go, okay, I'm good. Yeah. I'm ready to continue on. But like they they allow the contestants to kind of privately collect themselves, even when they're in a tent full of cameras and microphones. Yeah, yeah. It, it's th- that that whole spirit is woven throughout that show, even in the you know the produced version you get to see when you watch an episode. So it's lovely to hear that behind the camera there are moments of human decency there as well. So I've never seen the the Great British Breaking Show, heard all about it. Um, now I'm going to have to go watch it on Netflix. <laughs> but doesn't that say something like, I have so many friends who just absolutely love that show. Doesn't that say something about our culture as Americans? Oh my goodness. And yeah. our reality TV, TV show that this is such a like light and just like, I don't know, there's something like there's like this freedom, this like yeah. space to breathe again in reality TV show. And I think maybe that's kind of why I stayed away from it. I'm not a big I'm not a cook. I'm not much of a baker. So there's that. But yeah. then I'm also not a fan of, you know, most of the baking reality, you know, competition shows that we have here in the States because, you know, you think like Gordon Ramsay um, and those kind of shows. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I just don't want to see somebody being torn down because something didn't work out right. Yeah. I, I, 
sort of got drug kicking and screaming into the show. Like it started with like a, a, a Saturday where we were doing laundry and we needed to find something that like could be okay to watch that if kids came and barged in, like was we were guaranteed was going to be fine, nothing objectionable, but also kind of mindless. And so it, it fit that bill. And then I got hooked and now I will go out of my way if I've had a stressful day, like, you know what? I need to watch half an episode of the Great British Baking Show and be human again. Um, but honestly, on the days when... Uh, I am frustrated with fellow human beings or with the human being that looks back at me in the mirror. Like it's a show like this that like, like, okay, here's why God hasn't given up on the world. And it's not just the existence of cake in the world, although that's a positive, but just like there are these moments for humans to be decent and kind to each other over small things and also to celebrate when they do things well. That like, okay, this is, this is like, I imagine to some degree what it's going to be like to be in the great messianic banquet is going to be something like an episode, a great British baking show only discovered that nobody gets voted off at the end that there's no like, oh, you weren't good enough. It's just like, good cake for everybody. Let's eat. Um, But I think something like that is, is uh, what, what I have in mind now when I picture what it will be like to be there in glory, each of us saying, here's what I did with the, the, the ingredients and the time that I have. And each of us going, great job. And there's Jesus cheering everybody on going way to go. And I will say having visited England, the Brits are like that. (laughs) I got lost in London and I found some very, very kind people that guided me back to where I needed to be. Yeah. Um, So I know every culture has their jerks and everybody has, you know, our, each of us can have our bad moments as well. So it's a little bit of a broad brushstroke to say Americans are all obnoxious, but like as a culture, we kind of celebrate that brash, obnoxious, you know, bombast. And to be reminded, that's not the way you have to be human. It's lovely. So have you found that you now want to bake some of these things? Well, you know, it's it's funny. This is another thing I've come to appreciate about this show is that every once in a while, I'll see something and go, huh, that would be fun if I had a free day or a morning to do. But most of the time, I don't feel like this impulse of now I must top them. And I, I think that's the thing that's good for my soul as well, that like there's not mm-hmm. a well, now I have to do it. But like to be able to appreciate other people have these abilities and I can appreciate that they took that time without me having to then do it myself. That, that's something that I, I is, is hard for me sometimes. But I like that this show makes it possible for me to, to watch and go, good, good for them. Well, and I'm not even necessarily meaning topping them but and this might just be my own interest and I like to bake yeah and so things like that often make me aware of a baked good that I just do not know about because I feel like Americans we have are really like we have our like top five baked goods right cookies pie um donuts bagels cupcakes you know like we have very limited baked goods and so then you see like European baked goods or bakeries and it's like, wow, look at the variety. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, when I watch especially European baking shows like the Great British Bake Off, it's often like, oh, I wonder what that tastes like. Oh, this yeah. recipe does like, not necessarily the recipe they're using, but like the one I found online, this looks fairly simple and like way less complicated than what they're doing. But yeah. I bet I could make this and then taste it and then find out if this actually does taste delicious or if it's really gross. Like the the thing I really like in that regard about this show too, 
without waxing eloquent too far on this, but like the idea of letting a thing be what it is, even if it's not everybody's taste, like they'll, they'll, mm -hmm. you know, like in this episode, you're going to make a ginger cake or what, you know, whatever. And I might immediately go like, well, I don't like to take the ginger. I'm never going to bake this, but to go like, here's, here's, you know, going to be 20 minutes of people talking about how to do this thing well and what makes it its own thing without saying, well, it'd be better if you cram chocolate in it. No, now you don't have a ginger cake now, but you know, like that, like every, every, thing that they're they're gonna bake has this sense of let this thing be what it is and it doesn't have to be everything to everybody if you're making a custard great do a custard and don't feel like you have to cram it with chocolate chips and let it be a, and like there's something also about the limits and boundaries of appreciating things as they are that again feels kind of un-american where we're like if you like this sandwich watch we're gonna make it a double decker and now it comes with fry like there's something lovely about here's a thing we can appreciate it in its simplicity let it be what it's gonna be um without cramming it with nacho cheese <laughs> um uh and in, in a culture like ours where like every six weeks taco bell has the latest we found a way to cram yet another flavor into this you know the same three ingredients but now it's got dorito dust on it like to just let a thing be what it is 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 lovely and like something my soul needs so i guess i want to propose that uh our list of a handful of unspiritual spiritual practices is by no means meant to be exhausted but rather just the opposite that we hope for folks listening this conversation inspires everybody to take a look at the things that are rhythms in your own life that don't necessarily look churchy or religious or spiritual at all but to discover how something might be feeding your soul in the midst of them anyhow, and maybe to see how God might be getting through to you, even in things that don't look spiritual at all. Any ask, any, any other words of wisdom for folks finding their own uh, unspiritual spiritual practices? Yeah, I guess just the permission giving of it's okay to rest mm -hmm. and it's okay to do something that makes you happy and feeds your soul, even if it doesn't produce anything for anybody else like I think that's something that we all struggle with in our society so you know it, it's okay it's okay to have a pursuit or a hobby that feeds your soul even if it doesn't produce anything else for anybody else beautifully said Mm -hmm. I second all of that, Sarah. <laughs> well, also, take naps. Take oh, naps. Absolutely. Have snacks. Jesus napped. In you fact, whatever you do now, now that this episode is about done, go find yourself. You listen. Go find yourself a snack. Go find yourself a place to sit. Go take a nap. And join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Okay, bye. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.